0: Support for the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast comes from HBO Documentary Films presenting All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, directed by Academy Award-winning filmmaker Laura Poitras. The film is an emotional and interconnected story about internationally renowned artist and activist Nan Golden, told through her slideshows, intimate interviews, groundbreaking photography, and rare footage of her personal fight to hold the Sackler family accountable for the overdose crisis. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed won the prestigious Golden Lion uh, for Best Film at the 79th Venice International Film Festival. It is only the second documentary to ever win this award in the festival's history. It's for your Academy Award consideration Best Documentary Feature, and I will editorialize here for a minute. It is one of the best, if not the best film of the year, uh, documentary or otherwise. This thing blew me away, and uh, we're gonna have Laura on the podcast uh, very soon.
1: Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm the Associate Craft Editor over at IndieWire. Today I have the great pleasure of bringing you a conversation with Sarah Dosa and Shane Boris, who are the director and one of the producers of Fire of Love. This is a fantastic documentary look at the truly fantastic lives of Katya and Maurice Kraft who were two very active volcanologists uh, married to each other and who lived and eventually died doing what they loved. The Fire of Love team had all of this amazing, like primally powerful footage of volcanoes from the crafts, which is very cool. But this conversation really got into the ways through filmmaking that Dosa was able to capture the spirit of the crafts, the editing choices, the choices with sound and music, uh, the choices with the fabulous narration that the film has to really clearly, effectively engineer a sense of whimsy and adventure. And it was fascinating to hear about how those choices got made and why. So put on a red beanie if you are so inclined and please enjoy this conversation with Sara Dosa and Shane Boris. I'm curious if, if you came to uh, sort of the archive materials that uh, Katja and Maurice had, or if you knew about their story first and then pursued um, this incredible treasure trove of footage that they have.
2: Yeah, so I'll, I'll start off, Shane, please jump on in. Um, We first learned about Katia and Maurice before we had seen the breadth of their archive. Um, And we first met them, actually, as we were doing research on on the last film that we made, which is a a feature documentary entitled This Year and the Unseen. That film um, took place in Iceland and follows the story of an Icelandic woman named um, Ráka Jónsotr, who is in communication with spirits of nature. Um, Iceland is a volcanic island, and we wanted to open the film with uh, kind of a um, uh, what we called like a, a magically real scene um, of Iceland being made and remade again uh, through volcanic forces. We, we thought that that could really set the tone um, for, for the film. And so we were doing research on erupting uh, you know footage yeah shots of erupting volcanoes in Iceland and that's how we first learned about Maurice and Katja Kraft since they were some of the only people who had really filmed Iceland's erupting volcanoes and so spectacularly their imagery was incredible but it was really once we learned about them as people that we thought okay we, we want to make this film so that
1: that's kind of what got us initially inspired I love that you 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 know talking about um, magical realism because there's a strain of that in Fire of Love as well Um, even though, you know, it is also kind of, it's, it's kind of both this, this very whimsical love story and a science documentary. I'm curious how you guys navigated and and settled on the tone of the film and the components that we're going to carry that.
2: Katia and Maurice really led every single artistic choice that we made. Uh, That might sound kind of funny considering they are no longer with us. Um, They passed away 31 years ago, but it was really important to us to listen to them however we could through the footage that they left behind, through the almost 20 books that they wrote, um, through the memories that they left in in their loved ones and friends who we interviewed, even though those interviews don't appear on camera. Um, And they had such a playful spirit. And uh, they were so guided by love that we wanted to make a playful film that also was driven by the forces of love. Um, so that that's really kind of what initially set our direction for the film. Most notably, there's a sentence in a book that Maurice wrote, where he says, for me, Katia and Volcanoes, it is a love story. And and we felt like he was really handing us a thesis for how he understood his life and how we too decided to kind of tell this story because you could go in so many different directions given the expansiveness of the Crafts Archive and and their work. Um, But that for us uh, felt extremely exciting and meaningful and true to them and their spirit. The other thing too that is contained in that sentence, it's not just a love story, it's a love triangle between Katia and Reese and Volcano. And that made us think of the French New Wave films that were becoming very popular as Katia and Maurice themselves were coming of age. And French New Wave aesthetics really show up in their own work. So that also really helped to kind of inform our direction. Um, we embraced some of the hallmarks of, of that movement uh, in how we edited the film associatively, um, in the music choices, uh, and in kind of the sense of play as well. Um, again, always stemming from Katia and Maurice, but were gifts for us uh, to get to use as Kind of
1: a interpretive grid, so to speak. No, that makes that makes a ton of sense. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what an associative style of editing means. Both, you know, when working with such an expansive archive, what is the emotional logic that is driving the film forward?
2: First, I should say we worked with two phenomenal editors, Aaron Casper and Jocelyn Chaput. Um They were just extraordinarily diligent, hard workers, um, and they both possess such a sense of play and humor themselves. And so they really brought their personalities as well as their editing chops to bear as as we're making this film. We talked a lot about associative editing and, and what that meant in a French New Wave context and also what it meant for our film. Um, for us, the footage that Katya and Maurice shot it was about 180 to 200 hours of 16 millimeter footage that, that they shot. Um, and then there's about 50 hours or so of footage that other people shot of Katya and Maurice. Um, the 16 millimeter footage that they shot didn't have any sound. <laughs> there was no sync sound on it. And also the shots were often very short and mixed up in chronologically. There would be, um, say, a shot of... Interrupting volcano that lasted two seconds, a shot of a gas that, that lasted five seconds, then all of a sudden a shot of donkeys climbing up a mountain for 16 seconds, followed by a monitor lizard eating a dead animal, they, they, they th- these things didn't make sense and, and they were quite broken. Um, and luckily we had their books that helped to inform us of what was actually happening and how they felt as they embarked on these journeys. But uh, the material itself is extremely difficult to work with. Um, In that sense, uh, associative editing, meaning kind of taking one image and finding a resonant connection in another image um, was extremely important for us uh, because that allowed a a sense of like an intuitive connective tissue, whether it was visually intuitive or sonically intuitive in terms of how we were crafting the sound design, for example, like some bubbles. And then just as we play with the sound cracking, we cut to another eruption happening somewhere else, finding a sense of connectivity between all things that kind of tells a larger ecological story about the connectedness of nature, but also how Kati and Maurice were understanding patterns and in, in science as well. So those were some of the things that we were working with with this footage. Um, we also really saw it as a collage film, and by doing so, that, that uh, opened up kind of the, the space for play and finding the connective tissue um, in, in that way of, as well.
3: And at its core, the movie is about a relationship, you know, it's the relationship, it's the love triangle between Katia Maurice and the volcano and they're teaching about the relational and interconnected nature of of this planet of the universe and so when we think about having form fit content that sort of um, associative editing made a lot of sense so that we could we could have scenes and moments sounds images ideas be related to what live in relation to one another and see where that takes us in a broader story arc that we we had a sense of but we would, we would we would have that through line of the arc through these really precious and prescient associative moments.
1: It's an incredible editing challenge from just having this this wealth of material, also an incredible sound design challenge to sort of create this visceral sense of being in the presence of Volcano. And some of that comes through the imagery, but a, but a lot of it is coming through the sounds that you guys sculpted. And so I'm curious to hear hear about that process and and kind of, you know, was that something that because you, you had been to Iceland, you sort of knew what you were going for? Or was there a little bit of trial and error to kind of get it right?
2: Uh, I would say there was a, a lot of trial and error, um, but it was also one of the most rewarding, creatively expansive parts of the process. at first, Erin and Jocelyn, our editors, uh, were kind of baffled and thinking, like, how are we going to, for example, create an assembly cut without any sound? Because it's going to be so laborious to build these soundscapes in from an early stage. Like maybe we thought at first we could just build in sound towards like rough cuts or, or later on. And as a team, if we could just have some tolerance for understanding things silently at first or putting text on screen so we would know, you know, for example, explosion sound here or wind sound here or car honk here. But we very quickly understood that sound was just important for building the story as are the visuals. And so Aaron and Jocelyn got to work doing pretty painstaking research uh, to make sure we were getting sounds that felt scientifically accurate. You know, they were working with uh, volcano and geothermal sound libraries and were doing a lot of research uh, on their own. Um, you know, they were looking things up, like the sound of the Renault car that they drove through Iceland in 1968 to make sure the engine was like the same, things like that. They, they really went into a lot of detail to capture that realism of the experience and also um, to bring in kind of just the the narrative power that sound can communicate. Um, you, you you know, you asked about our experience in Iceland and if that informed anything. And actually, it did. One of the things that I'll just share briefly is that, um, you know, we spent time in Iceland working on the Seer and the Unseen, but during the edit, we actually uh, went on an edit retreat uh, with our two executive producers from Sandbox Films, uh, Greg Buston and Jess Harrop, uh, our other producer, Ina Fitchman, and uh, Shane and me. Um, and we got to experience the um eruption in Iceland. One of the things that I thought was so mo- incredible about the sound was that you know, you would hear the lava kind of like hiss and crackle, and it sounded like Rice Krispies or, or something like that. Um, forgive my my human-centric <laughs> analogy there. Not at all. Uh, but then there'd be like this this huge boom that would just startle you, and you would realize that this thing that once kind of seems tame um, is completely unpredictable. Um, and that really also just in, in instilled in us this idea of, um, of wildness, of power, and that this this being that is this volcano could never quite be controlled. So that was quite informative.
3: We were able to, because sound didn't exist in the footage we got, we were able to tell a different kind of story with it. We had. everything Everything was coming from Maurice and Katya and we were trying to reflect the facts as best we understood them but because the facts didn't exist in some ways we were able to try and and understand and research and intuit what the truth is of what they were talking about or or create a sonic landscape that we felt could evoke that reality um, in the minds of uh, in the minds of the audience and so that was a really beautiful creative challenge and opportunity for us. Um, It it opened up creative pathways that wouldn't have been available to us otherwise. And it allowed us to be in a a strange way in in a more intimate and deeper relationship with Maurice Akacha because we had to ask far more questions of, of them, of their story, but also even of what they were hearing, um, in the images that we could see so clearly.
2: Just, just to build off of what Shane mentioned, um, there was like factual kind of a, a realism with the sound design, but in terms of kind of trying to connect with Kati and Maurice, you know, they would often describe these volcanoes as, as monsters, as, as beasts. who they were also enchanted by, you know, it, they were their loves. Um, and, uh, just one example of trying to get into that kind of uh, perception of volcanoes to, to situate the audience in, in their minds. As much as possible is um, when Erin was editing uh, the scene in Indonesia in 1979. Um, when Katy and Maurice go to visit the Anak Krakatau volcano, along with the volcanic eruption sounds, she actually experimented with putting dinosaur sounds <laughs> in there uh, in a very subtle way. But it did communicate this like monstrous feeling that was incredible. Um, and that you know, of course, there's not actually a dinosaur at the foot of Anak Krakatau, but it felt true to Katia and Maurice's own perception to how they narrated their own experiences through their own work and so that's something that the absence of sound allowed us to really experiment with is both the realism and the subjectivity of the experience all at once. Um, I also do want to to mention we had um, these amazing sound designers uh, and a re-recording mixer that we worked with in, in post production. We worked with a sound designer named Patrice Leblanc, based in Montreal, um, and Gavin Fernandez, our re-recording mixer, um, also in Montreal, and they just uh, took the work that Aaron and Jocelyn did and elevated it and, and made it more uh, powerful nuanced and multi-directional and getting to play with directionality was like huge for us because you know uh gavin for example was able to you know channel uh the power of uh the pyroclastic flow that uh, that you see in, in the scene in mount augustine in 1986 and have how you feel as if it's coming directly out uh, directly at you, um, things like that. Um, that kind of having those tools at our disposal to really communicate the sentience and the force of volcanoes through sound was was huge for us.
1: It it also feels like it, it gives you a little bit more flexibility in terms of this film is structured very carefully to sort of give like a lot of their their curiosity and love first in in kind of the red volcano phase and then a more destructive, socially conscious phase with the with the with the gray volcanoes um, and. and moving towards their death, having to build out sound gives you guys more flexibility in your, in what footage you could use where, or kind of just, I'm curious, sort of how you, how you tackle the monster of once you kind of have an emotional spine to it, how you assign footage to those places.
2: My, my first sense, uh, or my first way of answering that is, is that, you know, the sound was always part of it, but the, but the way we tried to assign kind of, um, yeah, how, how we built our structure was very much in, in line with this idea of telling a love triangle, um, and a lot of that actually uh, was mapped with Katin Maurice's own chronology. You know, the, the more that they desired to learn about volcanoes, um, uh, the less they actually understood. <laughs> um, it's kind of that, that great paradox of scientific inquiry or anyone who's pursuing a mystery. It's like the, the desire to pull you in makes you realize just the vastness of the questions. Um, and for us, once katin Maurice reached that point of, of mystery, instead of... You know, shying away, they went towards, and that opened up a, a deeper space into love and understanding, uh, but also into kind of the uh, the dangers, um, the the potential f- uh, for death looming around the corner. And 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 so, um, using this kind of structure of falling in love and going towards the thing that they loved, um, um, brought us to the, the the kind of the greatest danger, which is the gray volcanoes, so to speak. And and so I'll just say kind of our love triangle structure fit kind of organically actually with their life's journey. And that ultimately was a journey towards understanding, even though the thing that they sought to understand, they also knew at the same time they could never fully understand.
1: I'm curious, you know, we we get so much of the the two of them as these Perfectly matched, if slightly different temperamental collaborators. What was the collaborative process like in creating the documentaries? Were you each kind of working on different sections or passing things back and forth? I'm just, you know, it, it feels like... Going through such a mountain of footage, it has to be a team effort.
2: It was absolutely a team effort. And, and the team effort is one of the great joys of the process. Um, we loved working with our editors, and, um, and yeah, and I felt like the joy of the process, it's always kind of been our hope that that can resonate on screen. Um, it was a very dynamic process. So we, we started out having kind of one way we we thought we would tackle it, and then that changed throughout.
3: Uh, I, I think you're asking if we all have red hats, and the answer is <laughs> the answer is yes, we do. Yeah.
1: I took that as a given. <laughs>
3: um, but no, I, I think this this film we we wanted to make a film that was a collage film, and I think again that was a part of our process too, where we were we were pulling in influences from you know their their, their footage, the photography, their, their books, but we're also pulling in ideas from every corner, you know, from, from the, our editors, our, our other producer, our executive producers, and then even our, our associated producer, our, 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 you know, our composer, you know, everyone animators. animators <laughs> yeah. Like our, our entire team, you know, it was a, it was a really fluid process and, and a, a really open environment to have ideas, have ideas that don't work, have ideas that that may work. And, um, and, and in making this film, you know, Katya and Maurice, their process as scientists and filmmakers was to go out and confront and experience what, what, connected with them what what mattered where they experienced awe and beauty and a uh, proximity to understanding and i think we tried to do that as a team as well and that was that's inspiring when you get to do that with people who you respect and people who are very very talented and have have a vision of telling a story that that hopefully hopefully matters someday when when you can do that in a, in, in that sort of spirit of always moving towards those things that are about that are valuable to you um, i think Great, you know, potentially great things can happen, and that was our hope in making
2: it. Just to add, there there was all kinds of different kind of tools we tried to use from, you know, uh, especially at the beginning when we were isolated in our various homes during during lockdown, which is when we really started making the films. There's a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of Google Docs flying around, um, but then later in the pandemic, uh, once we all got vaccinated, um, Shane, Ina. Uh, Aaron, Jocelyn and me had a little retreat in in Topanga, California, where Shane's based and and really got to be together for the first time to to dream up what was possible for the film. And uh, later on, a few months down the road, um, Aaron and Jocelyn essentially moved in with me and and Shane was there for a very long time too. And, And we kind of had this like round the clock working on everything together mentality. We often joke that we felt like we were like college students with a deadline the next day and we were up late at night, just trying out ideas and laughing together um but simultaneously working really hard and um so all all to say we we had a lot of fun and and um worked our hardest and and also really tried to conjure Kachi and Maurice as much as possible to really center them um as collaborators as well as as we made the film
3: and I think we learned we learned also and this goes to the aesthetic of the film too about you know they were they were deeply philosophical people and and very, very much steeped in existentialism and in French new wave cinema and, and, and all that meant. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they were also unbelievably playful. People. Yeah. <laughs> and, and recognize that if they were to, to delve into the absurdity of the, of the universe mm-hmm. and the brilliance and majesty of it, you also have to encounter that with a sense of play and a sense of curiosity and a sense of mystery. And so that that like fit yeah. our personality and we were like very welcome and excited to to <laughs> embark upon that in our process too. Yeah.
1: Everything that the film is doing uh, creates that sense sense of love and play and also on respect. but especially you know the the choices with um, animation and music seem like to me uh, a lot of where a lot of the play uh, gets to live. and so I'm curious to talk to you guys both about like, making those choices and then like refining and finding the right places for them
2: yeah early on we knew that music was going to play an important role in the film just knowing how music itself is a magic that can transform an emotion in an instant and just so associate music with love and and the feelings of falling in love um, we imagined uh, a retrofuturistic score for the film Was that that was the word we used a lot um, put uh, in other terms um, kind of a dreaming of the future but from a vintage past and we started kind of thinking up uh, artists who, who could do that well and air came to mind that the French pop duo from that's that were extremely popular especially in the 90s and 2000s Um, And we were lucky enough to get to work with uh, Nicolas Godin, who is one half of AIR as our composer. Um, So he set a a really wonderfully whimsical, romantic and playful um, musical um, kind of landscape for for us to to work with. Um, We also, since, you know, much of the footage didn't have sound, Aaron and Jocelyn, as they were cutting, they often would use kind of a song as a way, as kind of forming the connective tissue between images, um, as if you're editing a music video. And that added not just a sense of uh, connective connective tissue, but it communicated the emotions behind the songs too. Um, So that was really fun for us to get to work with. Um, as, as Shane mentioned, we think of the film as the collage too, and, and we wanted the collage feel to be reflected in some of our song choices. And that's why you have, you know, air songs, Brian Eno songs, but also you have archival songs. For example, Dalida, who is um, a French singer, songwriter, um, who was very popular in the 60s and 70s, um, some other French uh, musicians too, who you would have heard in a cafe if you're hanging at with Katya and Maurice. So it was important to bring that historiosity um, in, into um, yeah and into the music.
3: You know, we l- worked with this incredible animator named Lucy Munger. And we we saw just a little a little tidbit of her work prior to even starting the film when we were still creating a, a development reel for it. And Sarah just like saw it and was just blown away, like knew that, that that was the look for the animation of this film and also would drive some of the other aesthetic choices that we would make in the film later on too so animation was a really early part and we also knew that um, the film was going to have gaps the material had gaps inside of it that's that's why narration was important that's that's why this kind of curiosity is a is partly why curiosity is a theme that's threaded throughout the film and that's also why animation is there to, to help to help highlight the fact that there are gaps and then to help Fill in some of those gaps and to do it in a way that couldn't be couldn't be done with the footage that we had and to also participate in that collage aesthetic and lucy is an absolute joy to work with mm-hmm. and a, an incredible animator and i think she was able to bring out um in a, in a similar way to music i think you know sarah said it really accurately and something i believe too which is that music is a really visceral immediate connection to our emotion in in a way yeah, um, there are other things that are like that too the human face can be like that for us <laughs> but then there are these types of the animation too that really can can conjure uh, an emotional imagination that you you can't do in a in a more real and a more real framework and so for us that was really a beautiful way mm-hmm. to uh, incorporate animation and help that enlarge the the scope and wonder and mystery that Maurice and Katya were always um, in pursuit of.
2: Yeah, I think that's really beautifully said. Um, to, to answer your, your part, Sarah, about uh, why um, animation and why in certain parts, um, uh, some of the footage that we most lacked in terms of the telling of Katya and Maurice's love story was that meeting as university students, because they really grabbed cameras afterwards and they first began their work in the fields um, in the early seventies and moving forward. And so we were trying to think of creative ways of how to tell this story of, of their early years, specifically how they fell in love over books and reading um, and dreaming up what, what they could soon be doing together in the field uh, through the research that had been done thus far. Um, and so we, we imagined kind of a, this a scene of, of them falling in love in a paper world, in book world as we kind of called it. And, and we worked with Lucy to develop that. Um, that aesthetic. And that's why you see them kind of like falling into a book and exploring these paper landscapes that soon give way to the real landscapes that they themselves capture. Um, But we bring that back in that kind of paper feel to connote a feeling of dreaminess and kind of the whimsy of falling in love and connoting kind of falling in love through that book world. Um, and also in a few moments when we, we need to give little lessons uh, or to illustrate things that, you know, such as tectonic plates that connote like the massive grand geologic scale that Katia and Maurice, you know, could not actually film um, with their cameras. So that, that's when we in, invoke it and then use it in the film.
3: We were really inspired by Marisa's snap sounds. Yeah. <laughs> that was part of the mission too. How far out we could yeah. go and how close up we could yeah. get. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: with any film, but I think particularly with documentaries, there's always a sense of what is the film leaving its audience with? Like what what is what is the audience supposed to do with it now that it's over? Um, and so I'm curious for you guys to talk about both the beginning and the end of the film, because we know that um, they die doing what they love uh, from the start, why the film is 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 structured in that way, and what you what you want the audience to to take from it.
2: It was really important for us to say early on in the film that Cassie and Maurice die, and that was important for a few reasons. First, we didn't want to leave their death to the end, um, for it to be some sort of kind of third act sensational twist. Um, we thought it would be respectful to kind of mention it early on. Um and so that, that's that's a part of why we did that. Uh, another reason why was we were concerned that if the audience didn't know, they would be constantly asking, you know, like, do Katy and Maurice die here? Like, oh no, they're so close to the lava here. Is this where it happens? Do they die? I'm not sure, you know. And we really wanted to clear out those questions um, from the film and open up instead narrative space to focus on how they lived. That that was what was most important for us. Um Third, this is a film about time. Uh, actually, we think that that's one of the main themes of it. Um, kind of the fleeting fragility of, of human life, uh, an individual life that can be gone in an instant, set against the enormity of, of geologic time. And we thought that if we could set you know, a human clock, so to speak, Uh, early on in the film that would help to pull into focus what was most meaningful for Katia and Maurice, and that was their love of each other and their love of volcanoes so I'll just say all of these things really kind of factored into how we thought about structuring the film um, so we could put that in the beginning and not leave it towards the end and then there's other considerations too about what we wanted the audience to actually be left with once they saw their their death at the end one of the things too is is kind of um in line with what i was just saying about focusing on their life and for us we're really hoping that says will understand Katya and Maurice is uh living um such a meaningful life and also dying a, a meaningful death um and so much of that was uh due to how they pursued what they loved um they as you know we mentioned earlier they knew that they could never actually understand the vast mystery that our volcanoes or how the planet works, but they went towards that. Um, and that was because of their love and that love enriched enriched their lives so meaning, meaningfully. And so we hope that audiences will really feel that kind of love and that sense of meaning um, and be inspired by that in, in their own lives. The other thing too that we always hoped that audiences would come away with is a is feeling of the sheer sentience and power of of nature um, and not to see humans as separate from it uh, to see us all as interconnected and kind of the forces of Um, Of destruction and creation, and um, and that there is no end to these things. It's it's a constant, constant cycle of life. Um, I I could go on and on, but those those were some of the main things that we were hoping people would would feel. You know,
3: as for any storyteller or filmmaker, like you always want to leave that that question open to the open to people who watch it, and 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 hope that you will learn what the movie is about from from other people. You know, from from their watches, because it's always this this sort of dialogical experience where we get to learn as much about the film from hearing other people's responses we ever get to communicate in, in making it. At the same time, there are some things that, that were important to us that we hope we hope the film accomplishes. One of them, I think for me, comes from a line in the film um, that's actually quoted by Zen monk Thich Nhat Hanh where he says, understanding is love's other name. For us, like I think for me, understanding becomes a really important theme in the film that we, we are always moving closer mm-hmm to, we always want to move closer to understanding, even though we will never understand fully. And that is what lets us live a meaningful life and die a meaningful death. To me, that was tremendously important and meaningful in making the film. Also, uh, it's, you know, it's something I haven't talked about and that much in relation to the film, but I have the sense that you you can, you know, you can fail doing what you don't believe in, and you can fail doing what you believe in. And so you might as well do what you believe in. Um, this similarly, you know, you can you can experience life not you can experience life without loving what you're engaged in, and you can experience life by loving what you're engaged in. And so, and I, mean, I guess that doesn't work quite as well. You can you can cut that out, but 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 the sense the sense that like uh, if you do know what you love. And and if you know what you love to do, the pursuit of that is one of the most important things we can do. That that is how we're able to give what we have to give in this world. And um, Maurice and Katya are are very radical teachers of that very important lesson.
1: It seems like you guys had from the early going such great instincts about what this film needed to be and uh, and about who who Maurice and Katya are as people. I'm curious if there were any first principles or or sort of big creative decisions that changed or shifted as you guys went along or did you kind of just like in absorbing the material have a sense for for the shape of the film
2: there were a lot of principles starting out that even if that how they uh they, they definitely changed throughout um some of our original vision did stay the same um but I do believe that serendipity is is like the greatest force and most important resource actually for a documentary film Um, I think one of the most notable changes is actually the character of of volcanoes. uh, We started out, uh, Shane and I had a writing retreat very early on in the process, it was October of 2020, in fact, is that right? Yeah, October, 2020. Um, And we created an outline for the film and, and some of the film really kind of adheres to that early outline. And of course there's some big structural changes too, but we wrote what we thought of as an opening myth for the film about a lonely volcano and then these humans that dared to love this lonely volcano. And, and it was a wonderful writing exercise for us um, that we thought could help frame the love triangle um, that we were after. And um and Maurice often anthropomorphized volcanoes. Sometimes they didn't, but sometimes they did. And so we felt like, okay, this is kind of true uh, to them. But we realized the more research we did and the more we learned about Kathy and Maurice, trying to listen deeply to them and their experience um, and interviewing, you know, their colleagues and family, we realized that the volcano wasn't lonely. The volcano was the volcano. The, and in Katyn Marissa's words, which we heard most clearly, the volcano was indifferent. And that by attempting to have the volcano as some sort of third participant uh, in this actively in, in this love triangle, we were actually going to be placing the volcano in problematically human terms. Um, and for us, it was really important that the volcano stay as expansive as possible and to be kind of celebrated and understood in its own power and sentience and and life force all to say so that that was a big change that was a really important change that happened um, i'm sure there's many more but that's just one that that was really uh, good for us to to uh have established earlier on
3: you know in in the process of you know you probably in the process of making a film you you sort of are moving forward and you know the steps forward and there's steps back and and you can you can find things that that are, are working in one configuration of the of the film and then you hope that works when you add one one piece of information and then the rest of the film sort of unravels it's this it's this really crazy problem in this film as in all others I, I feel like we we developed entire sequences entire scenes that that made perfect sense up until almost the very end of the film and then when we when we move one other thing in the beginning it, it just wasn't able to fit anymore and so there were all of these more more typical changes that happen in the edit um but i i think more than other films we we did have a sense from early on of the of the love triangle of the love story of the role we wanted volcanoes to the the sentience and the role that volcanoes play in, in, in the myth, in their story but I don't know mm-hmm. I don't know if I can pinpoint
2: yeah, yeah. did it, that
1: spark something It
2: did yeah I mean our narration changed a lot uh, yeah. throughout the course of- I would
1: imagine so yeah.
2: yeah at the very beginning we didn't want any narration actually right. we wanted right. just Katya and Maurice's footage um, to speak for itself and for their audio interviews to to uh, be the voices that you heard. Um, however, we very quickly realized that if we were to tell kind of a, a character-driven love story, which was what for us felt like the most true way to pursue the, the telling of their life story, then we needed another narrative vehicle that right. could provide kind of the, the context for um, not just their their life's work, uh, but also to bring out their interiority, however we could. Um, luckily, we had a, a lot of examples of how Katya and Maurice wrote and, and there's their voice from their writings and, and from some of their interviews. but um, but yeah, the, the archive itself was so limited um, that that writing narration seemed like a way that we could bring this in creatively. French New wave also employs kind of a subjective and playful narrator that destabilizes the like omniscient narrator of uh, that many people associate with with some documentary film. So that was kind of a style that we brought in and we're experimenting with and was a dynamic uh, element always changing up until the very even the sound mix we were taking out words and and replacing things here and there
3: oh that, that just reminds me of one of the things with the narration which is we also thought we wanted a french narrator right first yeah um and before before miranda came on yeah it, we, it was french in our mind and and at the same time also uh jocelyn chapu our, yeah. our editor also she voiced the narration for several of the early cuts of the film and so that that just changes everything when you have your scratch tracks and when you when your final narrator comes in um, and sometimes you aren't you aren't sure that the meaning changes in the film. And so even that mm-hmm. caused us to rethink some of the some of the cuts and, and some of the the music choices that we were making based on the differences between
1: Jocelyn and Miranda.
2: Yeah, yeah. A lot changed. Yeah. Jocelyn did an amazing job. And we were so grateful to work with Miranda July as our, our narrator.
1: I was gonna ask, it is a performance. So like what direction do you give Miranda July to like narrate your uh volcano documentary? I should
2: just say like Miranda is an artist who I have like loved and admired for so long that I was so nervous <laughs> going into working with her but she's incredible. She's such a talented artist and and she has a profound way of like making you also feel at ease. Um we we really wanted our um the voice of our narrator to feel inquisitive, uh to be asking questions rather than to be declaring facts. We thought that that would mirror Katia and Maurice's own kind of uh, curiosity and, and their search for understanding. Um, and it also mirrored our process of not, we wanted to be upfront that us as filmmakers, we didn't have all the answers because there were some things we just could never ask Katia and Maurice since they had died. So I'll just say, um, Miranda is someone who's just so naturally, wonderfully inquisitive. And, and she brought so much of that um, into her, her performance as our narrator. Um, one of the kind of notes of direction we did give her was, was a specific um, kind of uh, phrase we use that we call deadpan curiosity. <laughs> and that kind of comes from some of the French new wave style of, of narration. There's kind of this, um, this almost like neutral restraint, um, but a playfulness that you can feel palpably behind the restraint. And that's something that when Jocelyn was doing our temp narration, she really tried to conjure. Um, she was most notably influenced by Godard's film, masculine and feminine where um, the narrator has that kind of tone. We thought that would work well, not just because of, of the French new wave, but also um, to try to give space to the imagery and to Katya and Reese's voices. And whereas if there was a, a voice that was much more um, or neat or broke or full of um, personality, we, that would take up too much space in, in the economy of, of the film. And um, so that was one that we gave to Miranda. we really wanted her to to step in with her own kind of sense of warmth sense of love uh her yearning she's just an artist who communicates yearning with such intimacy and power so we we wanted Miranda to be Miranda and um she's stepped in into that in in our minds really beautifully
3: and I would just add just lastly that one of the really brilliant things about Sarah's style as a director is and maybe it's a part of her pedagogy too that there's there isn't as much a a sense of finding what isn't working as much as looking and circling what works and figuring out how that associates and relates to other things that work. And, and sit, just sitting to the side as Sarah was talking to Miranda, I, I was seeing that and, and seeing that pay incredible dividends in the, in the progression of their relationship, finding actually what worked for the voice um, collaboratively and also, in, and also in communication with one another.
1: The final question I have for you both is a deeply unfair one. Do you have a favorite volcano and why?
2: So I I have a few favorites, which I know is not the (laughs) fair way to answer this question. Um, I think I am powerfully drawn to Mount St. Helens. Um, I think it's just fascinating just what... Um, yeah, just the force of that eruption in 1980, it's, it's devastating, you know, it took the lives of, of many people, um, including David Johnston, a, a volcanologist that Katya and Maurice knew well. Um, so I by no means want, want to skip over that, that tragic fact, um, but the fact that it was thought to be 27,000 times the force of Hiroshima just puts kind of geologic power uh, in context um, in a way uh, for us humans. Um, But what it did as a watershed moment for the field of volcanology is is quite profound. Um, It it gave so many volcanologists a, a way to study uh, gray volcano is the most dangerous kind um, uh, for the first time, um, seeing as these are kind of once in a every hundred year type of event. So for, for me, it's really kind of stood out as a remarkably fascinating one. Um, and there's really interesting cultural history and cultural interpretations of it as outside of the scientific as well.
3: I have two favorites. The, <laughs> the first one is Anak Krakatau, because we had, we had the chance to go there. And that's where I had a chance to experience what it is like to be Face to face with creation, in a way. Yeah. Um, and then secondly, Mount Unzen, because that's where Maurice and Katya live.
1: Oh, I just got really emotional. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like that's that's how the podcast ends. Yep. <laughs> oh, I love that you said that's where they live. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> that made that's I, I was expecting to hear that. And that really just got me emotional. Thank you both so much for for answering my questions. This was amazing. And thank you for for such a wonderful, heartfelt, curious film.
2: Oh, thank you Thanks, so yeah. much, Sarah, for these really, thoughtful questions really and appreciate that. giving us the opportunity to to geek out about the fun
1: <laughs> the fun process of, of putting this this project together.